Our reading of God's holy word, as opposed to our singing of it, is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 8 and extending to verse 17. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a, a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to God. In the church fathers, not necessarily the apostolic church fathers of the second century, but more moving up in history, moving through the first millennia and such, there is a major emphasis on what the Christian ethic is, and it is described under the very picturesque term of the law of love. Sometimes it's described as the rule of love or the law of Christ. But that uh, phrase, the law of love, appears many times. A king has a law. That's what kings are for. They maintain the law. And the church fathers saw the law that Christ would have us maintain as, quote, the law of love. This phrase has become popular again, but not in the way that the fathers used it. Among liberal religionists, the law of love is a very popular phrase, but it has been really transformed into uh, a law of empathy. What they call love is being able to put yourself in the head of someone else and thinking like them and understanding life from their point of view, that's 
empathy, but empathy without anything else to bolster it, anything else to shape it and, and use it, is actually not a virtue. Empathy by itself, without any other ethical guideline, is being so open-minded your brain falls out. And that is what the left-sided religionist would have you believe the law of love is. You know, you're supposed to love your neighbor, love is empathy, you see things from their perspective, once you see things from their perspective, everything that they do is correct and we just have to understand them, that's the law of love. Well, our Lord Christ gave the law. Uh, the law is symbolized in various places in Scripture, but the most notable one is the Ten Commandments. And when our Lord in the flesh was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He responded with a phrase which has become truly connected to him, but it was not original. He was actually quoting rabbinical thought at the time. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like unto it. It's not the greatest commandment, but it's definitely related. Love your neighbor as yourself. We say this many times in worship. Uh, he broke it into two commandments, one having to do with God, one having to do with your neighbor. And those who heard him and knew what the rabbis were teaching, because they were using the exact same phraseology, uh, understood that Christ was effectively referring to the two tables of the law. What does the first table of the law require? Well, you are to have only God as your God. You are to not take his name in vain, which means not to speak lies and attribute it to God effectively. Uh, you are to, you know, uh, honor the Sabbath day. The, the, these four commandments are all about God. And then the last six, beginning with honor your father and mother and ending with uh, don't covet what your neighbor has, is all about your neighbor. And so our Lord, when he talked about what love is, made it very clear that there is a outworking of love that is appropriate to love. It is not simply empathy. Uh, do not murder is not strictly empathetic. It means even when you feel like murdering somebody, because you're probably going to at some point, the Lord God says, no, so you can't do that. There is a pattern and a structure to what love looks like. And if you follow the reformers and their understanding of the law, uh, the pattern is if you have a negative, it implies the positive. And if you have the positive, it implies the negative. So if there is a form of love that says, even though I can't stand my neighbor and I want to shoot him, I'm not to do that. The positive is God wants me to actually care about and seek the good of my neighbor, not just put a, not put a slug through his head, but actually build him up and try to help him, that sort of thing. 
So the liberal approach to what the law of love is falls way, way below what the Bible presents love to be. But that having been said, love is a matter of the internal person. I've just described that our Lord views loving God and loving neighbor in terms of actually doing certain things. It makes good works from a biblical point of view the tangible expression of what love is. We've looked at that many times before. Uh, our confession, the Savoy Declaration, says this about good works, and in talking about good works, it's talking about how you show your love. This is paragraph one, two, and seven from Savoy chapter 16. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word. So you've got a pattern there. God's word is the pattern. You can't say a good work is something that isn't in that pattern. And not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon pretense of good intentions. So a good work has to be based on God's word, and it can't just be somebody really thinks you ought to do it, or good intentions. Let that sink in for a second, because that is extremely important. You are not loving God or loving your neighbor just because you have good intentions. Terrible, terrible things have been done, are being done, and will be done in the future by people who will tell you with all honesty, my intentions were good. That doesn't really matter when it comes to a good work. That doesn't really matter uh, in showing what should be Christian love. Uh, your intentions, if they are at odds with the intentions of the scripture, are in fact misplaced. But going on, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. In other words, what we do on the outside demonstrates who we are on the inside. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, which is an internal quality. Thankfulness is in here, but it has to come out in action. Strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto. And having their fruit of holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So that makes these good works sound pretty important. They are even a testimony, an evangelism, so to speak. When people see good works, they're seeing what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. When they're seeing the culture of the kingdom of God, they're seeing the nature of the king. And uh, God really cares about these good works, and they are, in fact, the outworking of love. And if they don't have the proper internal motivation, they aren't actually good works. Paragraph 7 says, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, 
and of good use to both themselves and to others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in the right manner, according to the word, nor to a right end to glorify God, they are therefore sinful, and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. So what's being said there is, if the internal human being doesn't have the right motivations, the right internal structure, even if they are nice people and they do things that God's word would say you ought to do, uh, it's a sin. The Puritans called such words works as things like delightful sins, magnificent sins. And the reason is because if you do the good work, but you're not doing it according to God's pattern, or it matches the pattern, but that's not your motivation, if you're not thankful to God, if you're not actually seeking to glorify God, then your being good is actually sinful. It's not an outworking of love. It can't be because who you are internally is not loving, even though the act is fairly good. Peter is bringing us to a conclusion here. Since the close to the start of chapter 2, he has been showing us a life that is right for a Christian. He's been showing us a life that glorifies God, and there has been worked into this theme uh, a life that glorifies God, evangelizes for God, and this is what ought to be. And he brings it to a close with internal qualities a person ought to have. Verse 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. When the fathers turn to the word to define the law of love, this passage gets some solid preeminence. This is what they said the law of love ought to look like. And let's break it down a little bit. What is happening internally? Well, the first thing that is happening is that the believers are all of one mind. Think about that for a second. Be of one mind, says Peter. The mind is internal, but it means that all the disciples are going to be of one mind. How comfortable are you with that imagery? Everyone be of one mind. Personally, uh, that's been one of the passages of scripture that have caused the hair in the back of my neck to stand up. I am very individualistic minded. I am very libertarian minded. And I have seen this passage used 
to uh, control and coerce. I've seen it used as a club to beat people with. We're all supposed to be of one mind. And what that means is you're supposed to be of my mind. Because I am the alpha leader, I am the aggressor person, and I'm telling you, you should think like me. Is that what Peter means by having one mind? Well, the answer is no. It's no in two ways. One is the way that Peter defines it in the chapter, be of one mind, having compassion for each other. Compassion is not coercion. Now, compassion may say, you are sinning against God, and in sinning against God, you're harming yourself. I have compassion for you, which means I actually want you to write with the Lord. So there may be some confrontation to this one-minded call, but it's rooted in caring about the other person and the kind of manipulation, the kind of coerciveness I'm describing doesn't have that. This is not the only place in the New Testament, though, where the call to one mind exists. We could go to the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, where Paul uses language very similar to what Peter is using. Everybody be of one mind. But I think... The most significant passage for this that comes out of the Apostle Paul is Philippians chapter 2, which I'm going to quote at length. It starts with a call to one-mindedness, but then it goes on. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love. So we're talking about love, we're talking about having one mind, and that comes right here. Being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, which would rule out the kind of coerciveness I was talking about, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then Paul goes on to define what that one mind is. It is not group consensus. It is not the one mind of the more aggressive leadership. But rather, Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of, of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and giving him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus 
Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul doesn't leave us dangling, saying, okay, you should all be of one mind. He defines that mind, and he says it is the mind of Jesus Christ. You have been incorporated into Christ in your salvation. There is a mystical union between you and him that is hard to define, but it's spiritual and very real. You are in Christ. You have access to the mind of Christ. This is a supernatural truth. Christ's way of thinking is the way you should think, all of you. And Peter finished the sentence with, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Paul says, have the mind of Christ, and then says, Christ had literally everything in glory. Christ was willing to empty himself for humanity. Christ became a man. Christ suffered death on the cross. How can you define what Paul is saying other than compassion? Which is Peter's term. Have compassion one for another. Have one mind. The mind is that of Christ Jesus. There is no more compassion that has ever been given than God became man and truly slummed it and then suffered absolute injustice, which Peter has been talking about, for the sake of redeeming those God loved. So the rule of love begins with and is rooted in the mind of Jesus Christ. You cannot say you love if your mind is different than Christ, because Christ is God, God is love, uh, there's no getting away from the mind of Christ. Anything that, that, that strikes at that strikes at love. And so Peter takes us to compassion, which Christ embodies, and then for the rest of this passage, uh, demonstrates what that compassion looks like. We are to love as brothers. It is the norm that family defend family, that blood is thicker than water. There is nothing wrong with that. There's actually a huge amount right with that. It is the way God designed family to be. There is a bond there that even if I get really ticked at my sister, it's still going to be me and my sister against my cousin because I got my sister's back. Well, Peter uses a term here that really speaks to that. Um, you are to have the mind of Christ, you're to love, especially one another, you are to love as family. Now, the law of love is greater than the brotherhood, but here Peter is pointing us into the brotherhood there is an emphasis in the New Testament, which the left doesn't like brought up, but it's very clear. All the apostles say things like, show compassion to all men, especially those of the household of faith. All men should be cared for, but it begins at the house of God. Show compassion for your family and then work out from there. Peter takes us there and he says, this is what having the mind of Christ looks like. Love as brothers, uh, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is very definitely an internal quality. And 
the only way I know how to truly describe it is by comparison to its opposite, because we know so much about its opposite more. What is the opposite of being tender-hearted? Well, the opposite is hard-hearted, right? And we all know what hard-heartedness is. It is that willful shutting you out. Uh, I'm not willing to give you air in a bottle, even if you need air. Uh, I really refuse to have any emotional connection to you. I, I have put a wall between you. Uh, I believe in boundaries, but this one is the Berlin Wall. I am just absolutely not going to have anything to do with you. I'm going to be hard-hearted. Well, flip that, and that's what Peter says the law of love is. I am willing to care about you. I'm willing to give you air in a bottle. I am willing to spend time with you. I am willing to be hurt by you possibly because I am tender-hearted as opposed to hard-hearted. Uh, and I am courteous. There is a minor, minor textual variant here that shows up in the ESV and that sort of Bible. It doesn't use the word courteous, it uses the word humble. And I think it may have crept into the text because Peter quotes at length from Psalm 34 where the word humble is present. And so uh, it may have, may have slipped in, but the term is actually courteous. Be courteous, this is part of being loving. Why so? What does courteousness mean and what it, is it consisting of? Well, courteousness is the acknowledgement that there are polite systems of relating to people that have, kind, that have been agreed upon and they're not sinful in themselves. This is not a sinful system. This is just people relate to one another in understood ways that avoid hurting other people. They have been built together over millennia. Uh, you are courteous if you follow those ways. As American citizens... Peter could not have said anything to us more offensive to us. We are Americans, and we're going to do what we want to do. And it doesn't matter if it causes a ruckus. It's my freedom to do it. If you don't like what I'm doing out in public, well, tough on you. I mean, I got myself a good 15 minutes on people at Walmart, and, and I'm really proud of that. Courteousness is actually acknowledging that you live in a world with people. My grandmother impressed that upon me to the point I was sick of hearing it as a kid. Russ, you live in a world with people. And my thought was, no doubt, I noticed they were moving around. They're definitely there. But grandma was impressing upon me, you are made in the image of God, but you're not the only one made in the image of God. Everyone who walks on two legs is made in the image of God. And God has willed that we relate to one another in a peaceful, agreed-upon, deferential order 
and I needed to do that. But Grandma wasn't that worthy. She used that little proverb, and it really took me until I got to be about 25 before I realized what Grandma was saying. But that's what Peter is saying. We live in society with agreed-upon rules that are designed to be deferent to one another. That is part of loving each other. He's pointed us to the brotherhood. It's part of loving all men. If you are not courteous, you are striking at the law of love to some degree. Now, again, our Lord Christ would have to be the example of what courteousness is. And the Lord Christ is known for saying things like, uh, you brood of vipers, you're whitewashed tombs. So courteousness does not imply uh, deceit, but it does imply respect. I watched this take place at a presbytery meeting in South Dakota. I had been invited to the OPC presbytery meeting there by uh, a friend, G.I. Williamson. Um, they were dealing with some business at this presbytery where there was a there was a church that had run off like six ministers in a row. They only stayed like nine months, and then the minister couldn't stand it anymore, and he left. And they were trying to run off the current minister, but he was of sterner stuff. And uh, the treasurer of the church decided, well, we want him gone, so I'm just going to stop paying him. So he had been ministering for like three months. And the church refused to pay him. And Presbytery had called them to account for what they were doing. And their elders got up and made some sort of defense of what they were doing. It was ludicrous. But the blowhards went on at length. And then at the end of their tirade, my friend G.I. stood up. And as you can imagine, this sort of infidelity to the gospel would make someone mad. You know, my I was a visitor. I wasn't going to say anything. But if I had had the right to say something, I would have blasted them. This courteous but truly iron will old man. Oh, trust me. He was in his 80s at this time stood up, and without any anger, without any yelling, without any harshness, simply looked the leader in the eye and said, you know you're doing the work of the devil, right? It wasn't violent, it wasn't loud, it wasn't shouted, but it was like a torpedo that blew a ship out of the water. I watched this rebellious arrogant elder crumbled under a phrase that was very forthright but very courteous. G.I. was the master of that. Peter says this is part of walking in love. Uh, it is. The church fathers also in using this passage like to point out that it is amazing 
in that it is directed to literally everybody in the church. As human beings, we are used to living in a society where justice is at least two-tiered and maybe three or four-tiered. That was definitely the way it was in the ancient world. You know, you get away with this, but you get away with that. And Peter has broken his instruction up into various people. You know, slaves this, wives that, husbands that. But as he brings it to a close, as he brings to a close what a life honoring to God looks like, all of these things apply to everyone who believes in Christ. It applies to the emperor. It applies to the peasant. It applies to the merchant. It applies to the wife. It applies to the husband. There is no division in any of this admonition as we come to a close, and the church fathers are amazed because the sinful flesh is used to thinking, I'm better than him, but he's better than me. And while we do all have different duties for our different callings, the law of love applies to everyone. It applies to the governor. It applies to the king. It applies to the president. It applies to the Supreme Court. It applies to the school teacher and principal. It applies to the students in their class. No one in the kingdom of Christ is to be free from the law of love. We do not live in a society like that. That is a counterculture. You can watch as our society does break up into privilege for thee, but not for me. Uh, Peter's words are revolutionary. The king must love. Wouldn't that be refreshing? And we don't see that. But that is what our king, the king of kings, law requires. It is for everyone. And it is not just being introduced at this moment. I would point you to how Peter builds his argument Peter says, okay, this is what love is supposed to look like. After all, Psalm 34 says, and then he quotes at length from the 34th Psalm, which is in the Old Testament. In the Bible college I went to, I had a professor, whose name I won't use, who uh, in class stood up and said, now, we are a New Testament people. Our Bible is really the New Testament. We still have the Old Testament, but it is only for four different usages. And in his four usages, they basically all summarized into very aspects of this is a witness to the fact Christ would come. There was direct prophecy and other aspects. We hold on to the Old Testament because... Uh, it pointed to Christ, but now that we have Christ, the Bible really kind of starts in Matthew 1.1, and we are a New Testament people. That doesn't work in this passage of the New Testament. Peter says, we are to love as brothers, we are to be compassionate, we are to have one mind, 
After all, the psalmist, some a thousand years before me, wrote this psalm, and this psalm says what I'm going to tell you effectively. And so this is the argument I am using to establish, quote, a New Testament ethic. It's based on the 34th Psalm. All the writers of the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, quote it as absolutely normative. It is not that Jesus has cut the Hebrew scriptures away and given us new ones. Peter says, look, the psalmist wanted us to walk according to this law. Listen to what he says. And then uh, goes through Psalm 34. He goes through verse 12 through 16, but verse 11 of Psalm 34 establishes the context of what we'll hear. The psalmist there says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then we get what Peter quotes. What is fear of a Lord? Well, a Lord is nobility. He is king. And there is a proper fear you are to give to him. The fear is internal. You honestly should be afraid to offend your Lord. But it works out in specific obedience to the Lord. It works out in obedience to his law. And so when the early church fathers talk about this being the law of love, they're not kidding. The psalmist used that very kind of language to introduce what Peter would introduce. Let me show you how to fear your Lord. What does it consist of? And then Peter quotes these actions and words that are specific to what you do if you are a citizen of the Lord who is God of the covenant, if you are a citizen of Jesus Christ. The law of love is the fear of the Lord, and deeds come from inner characteristics. Isn't it odd that when Peter quotes the psalm, it's all things you should do, watch your mouth, that sort of thing. Uh, but Peter quotes it as this is why you should have internal characteristics. You should love his brothers. You should be tender hearted. What is the connection? Well, the connection is in an objective world created by an objective God, Inner realities will have their day. You will be externally what you are internally. There is no getting away from it. What is happening internally will come out, and what comes out will show you what is internal. This is what James means when he says, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, what a person really is, is what a person does. It is not what a person says. And our Lord Christ was even more to the point on this. Uh, 
when he had given a teaching that his followers didn't understand, we take up reading in chapter 7 of Mark. So Jesus said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defiled a man. I have learned over the years to not even listen when somebody tells me who they are. It may be true. They may be honest. But they are what they do. I define you by what I see you do. And the Apostle Paul says, nobody should think of me other than what I say and what I do. Our real testimony to who we are is the things we do. Do you really walk as a disciple of Christ? You will look like a disciple of Christ. Are you a citizen of heaven? Have you been reborn from above? Do you call Jesus Christ your King of kings and Lord of lords? If you do, you will act on that. Because this is the fear of the Lord, says Peter. He says, don't return slander for slander. Don't revile for revile. Um, Watch your mouth. Uh, Do good to those who hate you. This is what it looks like to fear the Lord. And yet fear is an internal characteristic. It is felt in the heart. It is a matter of loyalty to the king, but it will come out in specific ways. It will come out in honoring the Lord above and beyond all, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It will come out in loving your neighbor as yourself. It will come out in obeying your king. And you really can't hide who you are indeed. There have been amazing amounts of people try to disguise who they are by their actions, but it never works. It can't, because it's a matter of psychology. It's a matter of the human persona. We are going to do what's in the heart. And what we do is going to show the heart. Having shown a life that is honoring to God, Peter then asks an interesting question. Who will harm you for doing good? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer to that is, well, not a lot of people. Although, ironically, this epistle has providentially been spawned by the fact that Christians are being harmed for doing good. So it will happen. 
But Peter takes a break from the action for just a second and says, now how common is that? Will people really harm you for doing good? And the answer is usually no. It is a matter of historical record that for the first 300 years of the gospel, there was persecution in the Roman Empire against the Christian church. And in certain places, at certain times, it was truly, truly demonic. But it was never constant. It was always in this little place for this amount of time, or in this kind of big place for this amount of time, but it was never all the time. <clears throat> the truth is, the image of God remains in people. And the average not-born-again sinner isn't the wicked. The, the wicked are those who will prey upon you, who will hurt you for doing good. They do exist. But the average sinner still has an image of God so he kind of acknowledges that good is good, and good is better because it's nicer. And he would kind of like to live in a good world, even though he doesn't believe it's possible. He's willing to loan you his lawnmower, and if you loan yours to him, he'll probably give it back. Uh, he may invite you over to a barbecue in the neighborhood. He's just kind of a nice guy, but he's as lost as the day is lost. That's where the majority of sinners are. And Peter asks, who will harm you if you want to do good? And the answer is generally no one, but there are some. And they are experiencing that. There is a, a major attack on what is good, where they're at. And Peter moves from who will do this to you to the statement, but if it does happen, you are in fact blessed. Why are you blessed? You're getting hurt. People are taking your stuff, they're breaking your body, they're insulting your uh, honor. Uh, how is it that you are blessed? Well, there's a couple ways. The first is, it is an honor to you that Christ allows you to be identified with him. That's not a given. Our Lord Christ could pull his name from us and say, I'm not with them. Now, don't, don't think they're mine. And who could blame him if he did? Christ has redeemed lost sinners who continue to struggle with their sinful nature. God is a holy, perfectly righteous entity. It is amazing that God lets us identify with him at all. But as the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, there's another one, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, which is a fancy word for God is going to judge them in damnation will happen, but to you of salvation and that from God. 
For to you it has been granted, it has been granted to you, this is a boon, a blessing, for it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, which has been granted to you, and you need to let that sink in, Paul says, it has been granted to you that you believe. You didn't do that of your own, God granted it to you. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You are honored. You are given the privilege of wearing the name of the King of Kings and receiving just a small token of what the world did to him. And in justice that Peter has been talking about for these various chapters, you are elevated beyond measure. You who were fallen in Adam, you who were given over to every possible sin, you who God had no objective reason to love, he chose to love, he has granted you to believe, and even above that has granted you the right to suffer for his name. It is a privilege. Secondly, you are blessed because nothing man can do to you can take away the ultimate good. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. The way the apostle puts it to the Romans is this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, shall any of those things separate us? As it is written, says Paul, taking the Psalms as normative, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So these things do happen. Peter says, who will harm you if you're doing good? The answer is, well, mostly no one. But it's constant enough. The psalmist can say this happens like all the time. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So they can't harm you in any way that has any effect on eternity. Time is, is a minor aberration. It is a drop in the bucket. Christ can't be taken from you. If Christ has been given to you, no one can take Christ from you. 
No one can persecute you out of Christ. No one can uh, bribe you out of Christ. The devils and all their hosts cannot snatch you from Christ. No, no, no demonic spirit can drive the spirit out of you. Jesus Christ is yours. And then finally, there is a reward for the abuse that is given. Peter quotes Psalm 34 and says, remember, God's eyes are everywhere, Psalm 34 says. His eyes are on the evil and on the good, and it is the Lord's to repay. He will repay the wicked. He will hear the righteous' prayer. But in contrast, not the wicked's. In verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, Peter has reminded husbands, now be gentle and considerate of your wives if you want God to hear your prayer. We assume God will listen to our prayer from everyone. We assume that everybody on the face of the earth, if they pray, God will hear them. And the Bible clearly says that's not true. Husbands, if you want to be heard by God, Care for your wives rightly. Judah, you've rebelled against me, so if Jeremiah prays for you, I'm not even going to listen to him. In fact, I'm going to say it three times. I don't care if he prays for you. I'm shutting out your prayers. But the prayers of the righteous are heard. God sees everything. Everything is going to come to the judgment seat. If you are persecuted for the name of Christ, for the good deeds you do, if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Which Peter tells us in the last verse I read, may be God's will. He said that, right? For it is better, if it is God's will, for you to be suffering for righteousness than for doing evil. But the reward is beyond measure. The Apostle Paul sums it up in Romans like this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, all of them, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Don't return reviling for reviling when somebody gets in your face cusses you and your family out to the third or fourth generations, uh, realize this is not taking place in secret. The eyes of God are watching everything that's happening. There will be an accounting. You will be blessed. Those who have attacked you will suffer the wrath of God. God will not suffer injustice to stand. There is going to be a judgment day, and literally everything that is unjust will find its accounting on that day. It will either be under the blood of Christ, or it won't. And if it's not, you can trust God will establish justice. You don't need to worry about that. It's going to happen. And he has blessed you with being able to be affiliated with that great name you can never lose.